Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. Tonight, I have a harrowing true story of Vietnam veteran Tom Huck. This story is one of many told by my friend and fellow author William F. Brown. He's collected hundreds of firsthand accounts of Vietnam veterans and published them in a five-book series entitled Our Vietnam Wars. Here is Tom Huck's War. I'm from Franklinville, New Jersey. It's south of Philly on the way to Cape May, about 10 miles north of the town where I live now. When I graduated from high school in 1964, I spent a couple of years working for a company that built municipal water treatment plants. I didn't know much about the technical end and performed various tasks in the lab in the warehouse. Two years later, the draft was breathing down my neck, so I enlisted in the Navy. To my surprise, somebody must have seen the name of the company and I was assigned to the Seabees. We built things like fire bases, roads, buildings, runways, bunkers, barracks, mess halls, water and sewer systems, and electric utilities. Anything that anybody needed. We usually worked on marine bases, trying to make their lives more comfortable, but we also did work for the Army and the Air Force. We were different from other services or engineer units in that we rotated in and out of Vietnam by battalion. Each had about 800 men and our tours in Vietnam were eight months long. After the first, we came back to the States for five months and then went over for a second eight-month tour. Every battalion was organized the same with four companies, each with different construction skills, plus the headquarters company. I was in Bravo Company, which had about 100 men and was responsible for utilities, plumbing, electricity, water, sanitation, and communications. I was in the water and plumbing section. Officially, we were Mobile Construction Battalion Number 1, MCB Number 1, and we arrived at Da Nang in April of 1967 for my first tour. That was our base, but we were constantly tasked to jobs all over I-Corps. One of the big ongoing projects we had was building Camp Evans on Route 1, about 10 miles north of Way. At one point, we loaded a small LST with building materials and supplies and sailed from Da Nang up the coast to the Perfume River and Hue. From there, everything was put on trucks and driven up to the Camp Evans construction site. We frequently had to wait for other trades to finish their work so we could go back and forth to Da Nang and take up the other projects we had going on at the same time. Normally, we traveled from Da Nang to Camp Evans by truck convoy, but they didn't go every day. When they did, it wasted most of a day. So if we couldn't find one headed that way, we'd quote-unquote take a taxi, which meant going over to any of the helipads at Da Nang and finding a chopper headed that way. We weren't supposed to do that, except for emergencies, but it saved a lot of time and everybody did it. On what became the one day I will never forget, the one that keeps me remembering Vietnam, my squad had gone up to Evans the day before. I missed the convoy for some reason I can't even remember. It was probably a doctor or a dentist appointment or something like that. So I went over to the helipad and found an Army Huey headed for Camp Evans. As usual, I was traveling light with my M16, maybe two magazines, and my soft hat, no helmet or flak jacket. After all, we were CBs, construction guys, not the infantry, and I took it for granted it would be a quick trip north. Inside the Huey, there was a pilot, co-pilot, and a crew chief who doubled as a machine gunner on the door-mounted M60. They wore flight helmets and could talk to each other, but as a passenger, I didn't have one. We were halfway up to Camp Evans when I could tell something was going on. 
The crew chief leaned over and yelled in my ear that they had received an emergency request and were diverting. A marine unit was in trouble, about to be overrun, and they needed help. It was an all-available aircraft call, and we were to respond and pick up the wounded ASAP. We dropped down to treetop level and were the first aircraft to arrive. It was easy to see that the Marines were pinned down in a clearing. Artillery rounds were exploding in the jungle beyond, but they suddenly stopped firing as we came in. As we descended into the clearing to pick up their wounded, our crew chief opened up on the tree line, spraying it with his M60, firing over the heads of the Marines lying in the clearing. That was when all hell broke loose, and we began taking intense small arms fire. Eventually, the crew chief had to stop firing and change the barrel of his M60 because it had become red hot, which could cause a malfunction. He grabbed a spare and asked me to help him change the barrel. The helicopter now became the NBA's prime target, and no sooner did we have the barrel changed than they came rushing at us from the trees, a long line of them in their beige uniforms and pith helmets, carrying rifles and AK-47s. The crew chief opened up again and provided covering fire for the corpsmen and marines as they carried a half dozen badly wounded men over to the door of the Huey. While the crew chief fired the M60 at the advancing line of NBA, I helped the corpsmen pull the bloody and badly wounded marines inside and lay them on the floor at our feet. Just as we got the last one in, the crew chief was hit by a large caliber bullet in his flight helmet. The helicopter was filled with a red mist. He flew backward and was dead in an instant. That was when I heard a strange staccato of noises, ping, thwack, ping, ping. With the M60 now quiet, the Huey was being riddled with even more small arms fire, dozens of rounds, and I knew that every thwack and ping was the sound of a round going through the Huey's thin skin. This was accented by the rays of sunlight that came streaming through each hole. Beautiful, but terrifying. I quickly stepped over the wounded Marines and the dead crew chief, took his position behind the M60, and began to fire on the line of NBA. I was somewhat familiar with the machine gun, but my body was tense with fear. I was standing in an open doorway firing the automatic weapon at them, and I had now become their main target. I had no flak jacket on, and there was nothing between me and the NVA except my shirt. At any second, I expected their bullets to tear into me too. I was fighting like hell, squeezing the trigger on full automatic and expecting to die any second. The NVA were now only 150 to 200 feet away. They didn't seem to be in any hurry, confidently walking toward us while keeping up a steady and relentless fire. After all, why should they hurry now? I don't have any idea how many there were, but it looked like a whole army to me, and there wasn't much left to stop them except my M60 and the Marine riflemen lying on the ground in front of me. The pilot turned in his seat and yelled back to me to hold on because we were taking off. Over my shoulder, I was aware that a burst of automatic rifle fire shattered the Huey's plexiglass windscreen, but I was focused on the NVA coming at us, convinced that the rounds chewing up the Huey would hit me next, and that would be it. That was when a second burst of bullets hit the windscreen and realized we still had not taken off. The wounded Marines lying at my feet were beginning to take hits too, and I knew something was seriously wrong. I leaned over, looked into the cockpit, and saw the pilot slumped over in his harness. He had a bad chest wound and his eyes were glazing over. The co-pilot had also been shot, and one look told me he was dead. I grabbed the first aid kit 
found a large compressed bandage, slapped it on the pilot's chest and applied pressure. That allowed him to breathe and restored his blood pressure. He suddenly came out of it, leaned forward and revved the engine. The helicopter's blades began to turn faster and faster. So I went back to the M60 and opened up on the NVA again. I kept firing until the machine gun got too hot, seized up and stopped working again. As I prepared for the end, I tried to clear the M60 as the sound of the engine grew louder. It sputtered and smoked and we bounced a few times, but the heavily loaded Huey finally rose off the ground. Whatever, I figured crashing in flames was better than sitting there like a duck on a pond. But as we rose higher, rounds began to come up through the floor, hitting some of the wounded before going out through the top. This was sheer agony. I wanted to help them, but I saw the pilot begin to pass out again. I quickly reached over and applied more pressure to his wound. He revived again, but every time I turned and wanted to help the others in back, he started to fade. So I had to stay with him and keep him awake with pressure on his wound. We had barely cleared the trees at the end of the clearing and banked toward the coast when helicopter gunships came in and raked the advancing NVA, driving them back from the Marines on the ground. They were followed by jets, which dropped napalm on the NVA positions further back in the jungle beyond the Marines. I can't believe to this day that we made it out of there. The Huey shook badly and smoke filled the cabin, but somehow it was flying. It couldn't have taken us more than a couple of minutes, but it seemed like hours before the pilot got us to a firebase nearby that had a medical unit. He managed to land the Huey on the white circle and red cross that marked their helicopter pad, but he had come in too fast, too low, and too hard, and we bounced and skidded across the concrete until it came to a halt near the sandbagged revetment of a mortar pit. The Huey was quickly surrounded by medics and stretcher bearers who unloaded the wounded Marines and the flight crew and began working on them right there. Both the co-pilot and the crew chief were dead, but the pilot was still alive. Two medics grabbed me and tried to lay me on a stretcher with the others until I told them I was okay. They didn't believe me and tried to get me on the stretcher anyway until I realized why. I looked down and saw that I was covered with blood from the crew chief, the pilot, and the wounded marines. They thought I had been shot too, but I convinced them I was okay before they cut off my uniform. I walked over to where they were treating the pilot and thanked him for getting us out. He said he was from Georgia but I didn't get his name. They rushed him off and I never saw him again, nor do I know if he or the Marines inside the Huey made it. I'm the only one on that chopper who hadn't been killed or wounded. I'd never seen so much carnage, nor have I ever been so scared. I stood there and watched the medics until they were all gone. Then I walked over to the wall of that mortar pit and slumped down with my back against the sandbags, shaking and sobbing for hours. That night, I went inside with the sandbags all around me and tried to sleep, but I couldn't. The next morning, I caught a ride on a truck up to Camp Evans. The blood all over my uniform had dried and looked like the usual reddish dirt and mud we worked in, so no one even noticed. I went to see our chief and told him the whole story. I asked him if I should report it or tell someone but he reminded me that I wasn't supposed to be on that Huey to begin with, and it might be best to just let it go. He suggested I go back to Da Nang and take a few days off, but I didn't want to fly again or to take a convoy, so I stayed at Camp Evans, did my job, and tried to put it out of my mind. 
That was during my first tour. Then we went home for five months. My mother-in-law threw me a big welcome home party, but I didn't feel much like a party. She came over and asked what was wrong. Wasn't I happy to be home? Yes, I told her. I was happy to be home, but I had to go right back and do another tour. She hadn't realized I had a second eight-month tour coming up. Upon our return, we could see a big difference in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive had happened between my two tours, and the destruction was everywhere. Seeing what happened to the city of Way was shocking. It had been a beautiful city, full of flowers and pastel colors when I left. It was rubble when I returned five months later. Our second tour was spent at various bases building and repairing the damage and starting new projects. We worked 12 to 14 hour days, seven days a week. Thankfully, I had no days like that one in the first tour. They sent us up north to build showers at a fire base near the DMZ where the runways were being lengthened so they could bring in C-130s. The week after we finished, that base was attacked and overrun by the NVA. We were also tasked to build a reinforced bunker 15 feet deep in Quang Tri for General Westmoreland to stay in during a three-day visit he had planned. We even put in a flush toilet just for him for three days. After that, we were sent to fix the plumbing system at the civilian hospital in the city of Da Nang. The septic system had backed up. We worked on it in waist-deep muck with a big backhoe until we had it all pumped out and we could replace the drain tiles. But a hospital? Who knew what toxic, contagious stuff was in there? And most of our guys ended up with dysentery afterward. When my second tour was over, I still had 14 months left on my enlistment, but I lucked out. The Seabees aren't allowed to do construction work within the U.S., I guess because we take away work from civilian contractors. They had created so many new battalions to send over to Vietnam that there weren't enough slots back in the U.S. to rotate all of us into when our tours were over, so anyone with 14 months left on his enlistment could get an early out. I made it by four days, and I went home. Since almost everyone on that Huey was killed or badly wounded, there was no record of what I did, much less of my even being on the helicopter to begin with. So I received the same Vietnam service medals that most guys got. I also received a lot more bad memories and serious PTSD. With my CB experience, the company I worked for out of high school that built municipal water treatment plants was happy to take me back. I ended up working for them for 48 years, preparing proposals, then being promoted to head sales in five states. Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, West Virginia, and D.C. until I retired on my 66th birthday. My wonderful wife Ruth and I have two sons and one grandson and live in New Jersey. Not bad for a broken down CB with only a high school diploma. My civilian job had kept me very busy and kept Vietnam and its resulting PTSD shoved back in the corner of my memory. That was good for about 35 years, but I still couldn't handle the sound of a helicopter or the memories of that day. Most of my time in Vietnam was hard, boring work, but it was those moments of stark terror that stay with me, and not a day goes by without my thinking about it. Then again, I know that if I live to be a hundred years old, I'll never have a worse day in my life than that day in that Huey. From then on, everything would be gravy. Some vets run from it, and I can see why some lose themselves in the bottle or drugs because of the heavy burden some still carry. We went, and we never talked about it. 
but it's never been out of our minds. Many of us were 18, 19, and 20 years old back then, and no young adult should ever experience what we saw, smelled, and felt. My PTSD apparently got worse and worse without my noticing. It was my wife who finally insisted that I go to the VA and get counseling, which I eventually did, and I remain in several discussion groups. I had kept it all inside, and opening up to others wasn't easy. I shared some of it with the guys in my unit during a reunion we had in 2000, and they all said they never knew about what happened that day. The VA may not have been worth much when we came home. Neither were the VFW or the American Legion, but the VA is providing a lot of help to a lot of guys now, including me. Agent Orange was everywhere, and too many guys have too many diseases, whether or not they are on the VA's official list. Vietnam was the most significant and most terrible part of my life, but I'm glad I went. It was a rite of passage for many of us. We grew up there, and I'm proud of my service. Still, not a day goes by without me revisiting it, and that's the conflict many of us have to this day. I'm not mad at anyone about it, even though we were lied to over and over again. I guess it's like being on a team with a bunch of great guys and a bad coach. I never talked about it when I came home, but my father knew something happened. For years, he kept asking me about it, but I never told him anything. Finally, in 1997 or 1998, almost 30 years after I came home, I wrote him a letter, very much like this narrative, and gave it to him. I told him I'd been sidestepping his questions for years and still wasn't ready to discuss what I experienced in person. For me, it was better to write it down. The emotion involved in talking about things I've been trying to forget for 30 years makes it very difficult for me to make myself understood. Now, I know that forgetting them isn't possible either. My father read my letter, and he never said another word to me about the war. Author's Note from William F. Brown Having done 240 of these interviews, this is one of the most remarkable of the lot. When we began talking, I thought, ho-hum, another CB road-building story, of which I had already done a few. But then Tom said, no, that's not what this is about. Wrong place, wrong time, luck of the draw? Whichever, a half-dozen Marines and a pilot were alive because he caught the wrong taxi that morning, and he should have received a Navy Cross or a Silver Star for what happened that day. Except no one knew except his father, now me, and you. In recent conversations with Tom, he informed me that he has now developed a rare and serious cancer, no doubt from Agent Orange exposure. Unfortunately, it was one of the 14 diseases the VA has determined to be Agent Orange presumptive for VA coverage, although it is possibly covered under the new PACT Act. Let's hope so. Thank you for watching Thriller Vault. You can find William F. Brown and Our Vietnam Wars on Amazon.